Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with veteran New York City studio vibraphonist, composer, and mallet keyboardist Steve Shapiro. He opened up about his new 2022 CD, Planned to be Spontaneous, out on Solid Tone Records. It's an album fueled by the events of the pandemic, and it's great that it's coming out right now. Over the years, he has recorded or performed with the likes of Steely Dan, Ornette Coleman, Phil Collins, Whitney Houston, They Might Be Giants, Pat Martino, and so many others. He is also quite an accomplished producer and arranger with work that has appeared in hundreds of high-profile projects for television, film, and Disney. He's got a great Pat Metheny story, and that seems to be the theme since Neon Jazz is actually coming out of his hometown of Lee Summit, Missouri. Enjoy this interview. I've got helicopters flying by, and uh, it's warm, so the windows are open. <laughs> I love it. It's fine. It's, we, can, we can stage this as uh, B-roll from Goodfellas, and then we'll be fine. There you go. I'm like near the hospital. There must be tons going on because of the holiday weekend, but the copter, it's like the, the ambulance copter keeps coming by. You know, when I used to live in, I, I lived, I'm here in Kansas City, and I used to live in uh, Midtown in the city. I'm in the suburbs now. I had kids, and I moved away. But I remember when the weather got warm or near a holiday, it was a cacophony of sound all over the place. Indeed, that is true. I'm not even in New York City. I'm out on the Cape. <laughs> oh, <laughs> at, pre well. at present. But yes, indeed. Indeed, I live slightly out of the city, too, because uh, I needed to um, expand of my studio to be large enough for vibes and marimbas and all the instruments I wanted, which started to become very difficult and expensive. I, I met Dave Samuels when I was a kid. Well, we uh, he used to have a nice loft, but that loft now is impossible for anyone but, you know, someone extremely wealthy. Absolutely. Well, I guess that's the thing. I guess that would be the starting point here of this kind of cacophony of human mingling right now because we've been living through COVID. Things are finally easing up. Everybody's kind of getting back to some level of like life as we knew it. So my question to you is, before we get into your new album, Plan to be Spontaneous, which I guess is timely based on what's going on now, you know, how did you survive COVID? What did you realize about yourself that's making you, hopefully, a stronger organism as we come out of it? Oh, that's an interesting question. Well, I mean, the new album was totally inspired by it because, you know, we all said, I think many of us, we're, you just had to think about, well, what's really important to me? You know, like, what, um, what am I wasting my time doing and what is something that I should do and pursue and what has, you know, long-term effects that are positive and then I started to realize like you know I've had all this music that I've been playing with various groups and I knew I was thinking about making a record and it's just it the other thing was what happened with with COVID was I wanted to keep musicians busy so the answer to answer your question it was I think to kind of help focus on what is more important you know what I mean because it really gave us the opportunity to take a break from everything we were doing because things stopped happening, whether it was gigs or sessions or anything. So, so for example, on this new record, uh, Jeff Coffin, the great saxophonist Jeff Coffin, who lives in Nashville and is in Dave Matthews' band and worked with Snarky Puppy and all these people, who's a great guy. I've known him forever. And I said to myself, I said, you know what? This is probably a good time to try to do something with Jeff because... He's home. He's not on the road all the time. But like now, we're back to it, and he's out there. Uh, I don't know how to how to do a recording with him because his schedule is really full. That was what prompted the album, and prompted it was all wrapped up in in the pandemic. Uh, you know, thoughts and 
at the same time, you know, we can go into it more, but like what it did to the New York area and the jazz clubs that went out of business, 55 bars, jazz standard, it changed uh, the landscape in New York. So we're still completely dealing with it, I, I think. But anyway, I think the new project was basically a reaction to what had happened, you know, and, and, a, and a way to channel my energy and try to keep some musicians busy, give them some sessions so I knew, I knew what working. Yeah, and I think that's the thing about all this. As you said, as you touched on, you know, there's been such a devastating uh, angle on this with clubs that have closed and people that have been affected adversely and, of course, people that lost their lives. But I think, too, when I see all you musicians coming out with music right now, it has to be a new dawn. Like, there's an opportunity for you to play live. You have a new album come out, coming out. It almost seems as though there's a level of Phoenix rebirth that we go into stuff like this right now. Yeah, I mean, there, I think I've seen that, too, and it's, it's actually challenging now releasing this record this year because it turns out there's a huge amount of jazz releases this year. And But I'm start, I started to understand that I, I, I didn't quite think everyone was doing this because we were all so disconnected. You know, you used to see people at gigs and you would see what was up, and we were all disconnected wherever we were. And some, some New York uh, musicians, a lot of New York musicians left the city. I mean incredible people I know like Joe Fromm the saxophonist moved to Nashville from New York and he'd been in New York forever other people went out to the beach or something and got out of the city and now have returned but we lost contact so I didn't necessarily know what everyone was doing but the point is that I I think we should all expect that creative people need this creative outlet and that during this time when you weren't hearing from everybody they were all working on stuff you know if they were a creative person they couldn't really stop doing that <laughs> That's kind of the way I felt. I felt like, well, we must channel this towards good. We have this energy. I had a bunch of tunes that I had been playing. I thought, well, I want to record these at some point. And then you just go, now's the time. Now I'm going to get these done. And so the interesting thing when it comes to this project was, you know, we all were Zooming and collaborating in new ways now. And a lot of us musicians have been doing that for a while. Like in the commercial world, I was always, you know, sending tracks back and forth to people or uh, to clients over the internet. That's been going on for a long time. But the whole world kind of went to Zoom. And so I started to feel like, you know, it gets into the theme of plan to be spontaneous because that was kind of what we were doing and uh, was this remote collaboration idea made me say that I have no bears. In other words, there's no excuse not to do this now in this pandemic. You want to get these songs recorded, let's do it. Uh, like Shane Perio, a guitarist who played on the project, who's uh, the music director of Hollow Notes, a great guitar player, played the Neville Brothers. And usually Shane was uh, living in New Orleans. He came to New York for a while, and actually that we had played a lot then, and I wanted to capture that band, which was the band with uh, Joe Rosenblatt and Mark Egan. But at the time... During the pandemic, Shane was in L.A. No problem. I said, just, I'm going to send you the track and you send me your stuff back. And we did, we collaborated um, remotely like that. Because you know what? I, I, I figured this is what everyone's doing. What else can we do, right? We, we, in other words, uh, that was part of the challenge of the project. Like, how can we, we're gonna, this is the world of what we're all doing now. We can't get together. How can we do this as good as possible? Make that really work. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So let's go back to the beginnings of your life. Are you originally from New York? No, I'm originally from Connecticut, and I came out of a place where a lot of musicians came from. So how did how did it all begin family-wise, like growing up? Was it always your destiny to be a musician? Not necessarily, but a couple things drew me to it. So 
I came out of, um, I grew up in West Hartford, Connecticut, where there, during the 70s and 80s, we had the number one high school jazz band in the country. And it's still a really good public school, uh, high school jazz program. So out of my high school came, uh, I graduated with Peter McGinnis, who's a great arranger now at William Patterson College as a professor of arranger, uh, arranging. He's an incredible trombonist and singer. He's, he's in the group, um, the Royal Bobsters now. Uh, and then out of my high school, uh, a few years later came Brad Meldow, came Joel Fromm, uh, uh, Richie Barche. There's all these really amazing musicians. You know, it was mostly because that environment, our parents were all like professionals and said, well, you guys can pursue it. You, you know, go pursue what you like. And we had this high school jazz program where we had a director who was very uh, intense and was able to get this band ship-shaped so that we won all these uh, uh, awards and stuff. But for me, I started on drums, and it was a little bit like a whiplash, like the movie Whiplash. It was a little bit like that, a lot of intimidation, and uh, uh, I, I found it to be... I, I think the band was good because there was a lot of uh, intimidating the kids to go uh, uh, practice who weren't really serious musicians. But for those of us who were serious musicians... Um, I didn't like that there was that, like, since I've taught uh, as an adult now, I, I prefer the inspiration route. So where I actually found inspiration was during this time, I got involved with a place uh, in Connecticut, in Weathersfield, not far away, uh, this guy owned named Bob Gatson, who became my first vibes teacher. And Bob had come out of Berkeley with uh, Pat Matheny, and he had studied with Gary Burton, and Bob introduced me to this whole world of music that was happening in the late 70s between New York and Boston. So he would bring Pat Matheny to his shop to do clinics, and I would be 16 years old, and he would have me work the door for tickets and hang out with Pat after. That had the biggest impact. Now, with the high school group, we got to tour Europe. We got to do incredible things. We, we came to New York City and recorded at RCA Studios in the same room as Frank Sinatra. There was, there was great opportunities. I had fun, real fun with my high school friends doing that. Meanwhile, I had this other um, thing going on because Creative Music was a percussion shop. It was drums and percussion. And by the time I was a senior in high school, Bob had been a vibes player. He switched back to drums, and he made me the vibes teacher at Creative Music. But through Bob and through that scene, I was introduced to Dave Samuels, who became my mentor and good friend. And I was introduced to people like Steve Swallow, and I studied drums with Bob Moses, uh, which I described actually at the time as being like throwing a puppy into the ocean and, and trying to get it to swim. But... That was my um, background, which I feel very grateful for growing up, because that really, you know, turned me on to, to the whole music scene and all these people who are incredible people and musicians. I mean, like, you know, Samuels and Steve Swallow, they're just some of the greatest people I ever met, you know? You know, I had all of it going on. I had the, it was, I was fortunate. I had the thing happening in school, and I had this other scene of uh, really... Um, great people who are older than me. They're all like 10 years older than me, but took me under their wing, you know. And then when I arrived in New York, that kept happening with new people, which also I'm grateful for. But that early chapter, our little town was a good um, springboard for some musicians to come out of. Like I said, Brad and everybody uh, uh, had a similar experience, you know. So you've, over the years, 
you have performed with a lot of really heavy cats and bands, Steely Dan, Ornette Coleman, you know, Phil Collins, they might be trying to tap Martino. My, my, my question to you is, what did you learn from them that in turn has made you, uh, um, that you teach younger players that you're around? What did you get from them? It's interesting. I got different things from each of them, but really valuable things, of course. You know, I mean, there's there's nothing better that you can do in music or in jazz than just get around some of these people who are kind of legendary, and you you know you get you pretty soon figure out exactly what it is that makes them so great. It's pretty simple. I try to teach that. Uh, sometimes it's hard to just. And those are so specific in each of what, like the people you just mentioned, what their, what I thought their, their their big lessons were. Um, you know, usually when you're teaching, like for example, I was teaching a course at Yale a, a number of times where it was more oriented toward my work in film, uh, in television music, and being a film composer. Uh, and there we talked about lessons of copyright and learning your worth. But for for those jazz musicians and the other musicians we talked about. Ornette, uh, somebody like that, I mean, his just whole way of looking at the world um, and looking at music, if you just spending a little time with him and seeing what like an open person he is and that you kind of understand how he could reinvent the saxophone. And I actually got to ask him some uh, questions, specific questions about harmonics, which was his harmonic language. I never quite understood it, and I never quite understood, like, how could I apply that to the vibraphone? And he just stood there and explained it to me very simply, and I was like, oh, now I get it, you know. But it's all coming with Ornette from this just place of openness, just like, he's just incredible warm person and uh puts all of that into into the music and then you go with someone like phil collins and the lesson i mean working with him he was just methodically great about making sure every track was perfect every vocal thing he did was perfect uh and you know he wouldn't he wouldn't sell for something that he didn't think had been his very best take and all that uh, and, and, of course, every one of them sounded amazing. You're listening to this, and I'm saying, nobody sounds like this as a singer. So I'm saying, like, you know, I think with these individuals, you take away these little specific things that can all add up. And I try to explain it just like I did to you now, to students. You know, it's very far away from if you're talking about, oh, the language of playing bebop on the vibraphone, to start talking about this, you know what I mean? But, um, but I'll give you an example. Like, I always tell vibraphonists and vibraphone students, one of the first things that Ornette said to me, so you're a vibraphonist and you must have to lead your own gigs. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. That's what you have to do as a vibraphonist. It, you, the sideman opportunities just come around every once in a while, but you really have to, if you want to get yourself out of there, you got to become a band leader too. And he just cut right through to that, you know, and he, and he made me feel like, oh, he understood that's, that's part of what it is in some ways to be a vibist, you know. And I try to transfer that kind of information that I got, you know, because <laughs> I feel like that's helpful for young players to realize, yeah, you're going to be dragging around this instrument and you're going to have to lead the gigs and um, you better love playing the vibes because, you know, it's it's otherwise, why are you doing that? <laughs> you know, the interesting thing, and I'm biased, totally biased, but I love the vibes. I always have, I always have had like a leaning on my show towards the sound of the vibes and playing the music. And I'm wondering... As a veteran of the instrument, explain to me something about the vibes that your layperson, your regular listener, doesn't understand about the instrument. Huh, that's interesting. Well, there's a joke that um, 
Gary Burton used to say, like, yeah, someone said, when you start going really fast, it almost looks like you're using four mallets. People don't know it's a joke because you are using four mallets. But um, <laughs> that is, you know, the kind of technique that developed mid-century that Gary Burton kind of pioneered, which was to play the instrument in more of a pianistic fashion. So at the most rudimentary level that I think most musicians understand is there's a couple of ways to approach it that you have the Lionel Hampton started out, and it was a very percussive, swingy type of thing that Lionel did. But when you got to Milt Jackson, all of a sudden Milt started to be able to play the vibraphone uh, like a horn, you know, taking his phrasing from horn players, Lester Young or whatever. And then as you, I mean, got to, I think, Bobby Hutcherson, there's a little of that horn. And Bobby Hutcherson I think of as more bringing the sheets to sound like John Coltrane could do. He brought that to the vibe. And then you have Gary Burton uh, and Victor Feldman, who I, I take as my, that's my lineage on the vibraphone, is, you know, Gary Burton, seeing him change my life, and, and I think many of the things he did musically were really reached out to me as a younger musician. Um, and he approached the instrument like a piano, just like Victor Feldman. And then I, I studied with uh, Dave Samuels and David Friedman, who kind of came out of that school. And I think one thing in the particular pianistic approach people don't understand, and um, I will tell you that, you know, the maybe the living master of this is David Friedman because David Samuels is no longer with us, unfortunately. Uh, but Dave Samuels was a master as well with this, uh, uh, which is the, the, the idea of dampening on the vibes, which is what you're doing is you are, you have the pedal so the notes can ring, but you are also using the mallets to dampen the bars. And by doing that, it's hard, it's hard to explain this without uh, demonstrating it to you on the instrument, but what happens is as you phrase a line, if you use the, 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 the mallets to dampen the bars, you can achieve a really nice legato that you can't in any other way on the instrument using the pedal. So what you can do, and like if you watch David Friedman, I try to do this if you see me, you're, you're playing and ringing, some of the instrument. This would be maybe more, you'd hear this more in like a solo setting, but it applies to always playing in any format. But you, when you solo setting, you can ring the instrument part of it and use this technique to create a line over that and make the line have its own independent phrasing. Now, if you're on a piano, you don't have to worry about this because you're, you have the ability to hold down the chord and then play short notes with your right hand, you know. But you don't have that ability on the vibes because you can't hold the chord down. You can only let it ring with the pedal. I don't know if I got too technical, but this idea of dampening uh, and that technique on the instrument, I don't think most people understand that some vibes are playing that way, but it really changes the ability of the instrument to be an expressive jazz, you know, vehicle. No, that makes total sense, absolutely. You know, and, and the one thing about COVID is that, you know, there was kind of this longing and this thing of going out and doing live shows and whatnot. And I'm curious, in that moment of reflection, you know, what is it that you like the best about being a professional musician? Well, that's an interesting question. Well, I mean, that's changed a lot. I would definitely say that it, it continues to change in some ways in terms of what the business is because the business has changed. So some of the things I used to enjoy doing, like, for example, I mean, I'll just answer your question simply. It's a clear answer to me, which is the community and the people and the wonderful hang with musicians, you know, and when you can make that hang happen musically. It's usually also happen off the bandstand, you know. You know, but I'll say, like, so, for example, 
I got into doing sessions and jingles and commercials and things because I could be in the studio. I mean, a few times when I started out, I had Michael Brecker on sessions, and it was all these incredible people that I worked with every single day back when the New York session scene was, you know, people doing three jingles a day during the day, and then at night you'd see everyone in the jazz clubs. So that is no longer happening. There's no session scene like that. It's still the, you know, my thing I like best is the people, but uh, I used to say, oh, I, I didn't mind doing a commercial project because I got to work with these great musicians. And now commercial projects, you know, you're sitting there by yourself in front of a computer. And that's also a double-edged uh, feeling for me. I mean, I used to love, I still love the technology, but I don't love sitting in front of the computer, cranking out a piece of television with no musicians. Uh, that's much less fun than it used to be. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. What was the first live jazz show that you ever saw that really blew you away? I think I think the one that really made the, the biggest impression was when I was in that high school band. Um, there was a great uh, uh, jazz uh, society in Hartford, the Hartford Jazz Society. I, I don't; they probably still exist, but they were going really strong in the late seventies. And a friend of mine's dad took me to see a Gary Burton quartet. And I think it was the band. I think it was the band with Tiger Akoshi on trumpet, and it might have been Danny Gottlieb on drums, and it was Steve Swallow on bass. And just seeing that quartet, and like actually seeing it live, I think I'd heard a little Gary Burton, but when I actually saw like what happened in that band and how that worked, it just grabbed me. You know, little did I know how hard it would ever be to play the vibraphone like that. <laughs> you know, because Gary is just a you know this one-of-a-kind genius, that definitely made me feel like, that made me feel like, and even though I loved Milt Jackson and all that, I felt like Milt was the the vibest or a musician of, like, my parents' generation. And I dug it and it was swinging, but it didn't make me feel like, this is what's happening now. And when I saw Gary, I was like, this is what's happening now, you know? And, and that kept going on because as Pat Metheny came out of that band and did his own thing, I kept feeling like, that's what's happening, you know, and it was, you know, you look back and those are the people changing the music, you know, at that time. So that's always stuck with me. And, and again, to circle back to my project, the whole thing about my project was, you know, I, I don't want you to put this album on and be like, oh, yeah, it sounds like another vibes player. It sounds like something I heard before. I think for people who like the vibraphone, uh, they'll be like, oh, I've never really heard a project like this before. And that's always what I enjoyed, you know, about discovering, like, Gary's music. You know, it was it didn't sound like anybody else's. And it also sounded like what was happening, you know, if it was 1978 or 1984, that's what it felt like was happening then, you know. didn't feel like that jazz, the history, the music of the past, you know. Even though we all have to learn and appreciate that music as the foundation of whatever we do, you know. Before everything shut down in the world, I'm in the Kansas City area. I moved to Lee Summit, which is the home of Pat Metheny. I would like to ask people, do you have a good Pat Metheny story? Because every since I've, that happened and I mentioned Lee Summit and Pat's name comes up, I get amazing stories from everybody. Yeah, it's funny. I, I, I do. I have, I mean, he was also really, he was really instrumental and in inspired me to want to be a musician because he was just completely happening at the time. I mean, happening in terms of like, this little germ that became much bigger. So I always felt like, oh, man, I was in on this early. I felt like it was some secret I knew. 
because I had met him when he just had left Gary's band, and, you know, he wasn't that famous or anything. But he was still, it was the early days of the Papathina group, and he was, um, I mean, we can also talk about the fact that Mark Egan, who was part of that band, is on my project, is on Plan to Be Spontaneous. Uh, there's a, certainly a direct link to my love for that early Pat Metheny group and why I've, I've always loved Mark's playing and why, of course, I wanted to work with him because just what he always brought to that music I thought was tremendous. And Danny Gottlieb, too. who Danny was on my record that came out in 2000 called uh, Xylophobia. Dan, I had Danny Gottlieb and Mark Johnson as a rhythm section on that. But they, you know, those guys were integral in that band with, and, and also... Then Lyle Mays became this, like, since I'm a kind of keyboard and synthesizer guy, he became one of my big heroes along with Joe Zawinul. Anyway, the thing about my past story, so they were playing at um, the Hartford Jazz Festival, which was this big outdoor venue, big on Bushnell Park in Hartford. And my friend Bob Gaston, who I had mentioned, was opening up with his band. So Bob had me backstage. And... I don't know, I must have been 17 and maybe Pat was 27. But Pat took the time to really talk to me. Like he talked to me, he looked me in the eye, really had a great conversation with me. He told me all about how when he had played Bob's, I didn't realize he had been a Bob's player. He wanted to be in Gary Burton's band. He, he's, I, think, I guess he played Bob's for a while, and then he wanted to be in Gary's band, really, he never could as a Bob's player. And I think he also saw how difficult the Bob's would be to do what he wanted to do. So thankfully for all of us, he switched to guitar. But um, he was telling me about, oh, yeah, how, you know, you, you pull the callus off your finger when you play the Bob's when you're trying to play really hard. I'm like, yes, I know that's, that's what happens to all of us. So he was really – he really um, – he just impressed me because he had really no reason that he needed to spend some time talking to a 16-year-old, and he was super nice. But I will say at the same time, anytime I've been in a situation with him, I can't even get to see him. He's always backstage or something. I haven't ever really talked to him since, you know. But he did He did give me that real um, that real nice uh, attention at just the right age, you know, that uh, it inspired me for a really long time, especially watching what his career did from there, you know, and say, wow, he was – he was really nice when I met him. So I will say, you know, back to your lessons, you know, I really try to do that with young musicians and and always uh, be nice, at least be nice to them, you know, because I also had a fair amount of musicians that, that weren't that nice. More, more you'd meet them in the New York session world and they would be like, oh, who are you, young guy, you know. Um, but the guys, you know who the nicest guys in that world were? Michael Brecker and, and Will Lee, who's still a great bass player, Will Lee. Those guys, you know, welcomed me and were so nice, and, and it makes you think, oh, that's the, the musician I want to be, like those guys. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely, and I've always heard that about Pat. Um, he's, he's, I've heard people being lauding him for how gracious he was at this time. You know, now that we're getting back to it, the world's kind of opening up, live music picking back up. What do you hope we all realize about the power of live music? Hmm, wow. This was another thing that I thought about with making the record, but it's more about, for me, uh doesn't apply to making a studio record as much as, as the live gigs, right? Is that live music, when you're there, it's one thing to play with your uh, friends or co-musicians, but you, when you have an audience, what's really happening, It's uh, I think that I found this, you know, what's the inspiring concerts I've seen over my life. You, the real thing is that you're all experiencing this moment together. Like, so if the band's good or the band's bad, whatever's happening... You experience this moment together, and the one thing that happens in jazz that can't really happen in concert music, 
when there's all the music written on the page, is that sometimes the musicians don't know what's going to happen. I mean, usually at the best gigs, the musicians don't know exactly what's going to happen. And that keeps an excitement there, you know. And if the audience is there, too, with you on that excitement, uh, I've definitely been kind of trying to say this at gigs. Like, you know, here we are all in the moment. We don't know what's going to happen. We hope we make it through this tune that we maybe didn't rehearse enough, you know, and it's got some really tricky parts. And, hey, give us a, give us a break if we don't. Uh, you're here with us, and we're going to all give it a try, and hopefully you're going you're gonna to like being on the ride. You know, I think that, to me, you know, what we should focus on more, especially with jazz, you know, post-pandemic, this, this idea that we're all on this kind of journey together. And, I, and you could be that way on a... a Going to the symphony, you know, because but when the when the music's all written, it's a little bit different journey. You know what I mean? They they can't just take it in any direction at any time. And what I love about jazz is that you can take it in any direction at any time. You know, if the musicians are good enough playing together and following each other. So everyone has a perception of you, or an idea of who they think you are. Your family, your friends, your fans, but ultimately you live your life. You have a perception of you. Who do you think you are? <laughs> oh my God. That's 25 layers deep. That's an interesting thing. Well, I don't know. I'm kind of in, and I, I, I could use the word adaptable, or I could use the word, like, not sure, you know, like um, a morphing type of vibe. I think some of that is out of necessity. I mean, being a, being a vibes player, I think to be successful in music, you have to be able to wear a lot of hats and have a lot of pots on the fire, maybe not just playing the instrument. So, who I am is someone that can kind of move between formats and styles and whatever. And by that, I mean my true musical personality, I think, and my, the music that I want to write as music I would think that would be interesting for people to listen to and, and experience um, as, as someone who's an artist is focused around vibes, is focused around technology, applying the vibes technology, but also... Uh, I still do television and film work as a composer, as an arranger. And in, the, in those things, I also move between styles. Like what I enjoy about doing that is one day I can write a country piece, another day I can write a classical piece, and the next day I write a jazz piece or a techno piece. So I think for me it's to be someone who, I don't want to say like a jack-of-all-trades, master of none. It's 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 not that because I have my focus on the vibes. But I do think it's, to be a, maybe the best way to put it is to be a very well-rounded and well-experienced musician and see myself like that and, and try to also, this is as far as the teaching and handing down this idea, I think in our modern world here, it wasn't just the pandemic, but it was the tech companies and it was everything else that's been happening in the world, that musicians need to be this. They need to be able to morph between styles, between genres, between commercial and artistic I think it's I think it's uh it's going to be a necessary way for everyone to go towards the future, you know. Uh I I just don't think you're going to be able to say I'm a one-dimensional vibraphonist and I'm going to get enough work and enough things happening. I mean, if you can, God bless you. But, you know, I think um this idea of of being diversified and well-rounded, I mean, I suppose that's the way I would hope to be uh perceived in some ways you know steve hey man thank you for taking time out today man i really appreciate it that was great to talk to you joe thanks for the call 
Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players and minds in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. Thanks to Steve for his time, music, and story. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino in the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube, or you can go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com and go to joedomino.com if you feel like kicking in via Patreon or PayPal. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.